You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. How am I supposed to preach after that? I literally didn't know about any of that. Um, I actually forgot it was my 10-year anniversary until I got up and they started the video and I was like, I thought it was like Dollar Club or something. I don't, I don't remember... I remember talking about that. Well, I'll just stand here awkwardly until they're done with the video, which is exactly what happened. So, <laughs> and I know you guys don't know, like I'm kind of free, kind of freewheeling here a little bit, um, but you don't know everybody in that video, but that was my mom and dad. It was my mother-in-law. Um, the one guy, Curtis, with the beard was one of the students that I just, uh, he's like a son to me, he's like a Timothy to me, using biblical terms. Uh, there were two girls from my youth group in there, two of my boys, I'm not sure if the third one just couldn't handle the moment or why he wasn't in there, but <clears throat> that, was, that was pretty cool, that was pretty cool, so thank you, I'm honored. Anyway, we got work to do, so let's jump in, because I'm a guy and this whole emotional thing is not good for me. Anyway, <laughs> let's start with this. Everybody watching at home, I don't know where you're picking this up in the podcast, so if you're just now watching or listening down the road, today was my 10-year anniversary at Kingsway, and they just did a video for me, and I'm a wreck, so we're going to do our best to get through this. So, question I want to start with today uh, is, what is the most valuable thing that you own? Think about it for a second, literally, what is the most valuable thing that you own? And yes, of course, I know you're going to say your spouse, your kids, whatever, but For a minute, go beyond that, okay? What is the most valuable thing, literal thing that you own? There's this video on YouTube. If you really are curious, you can look it up later. They brought four or five people in a room. They asked them what it's the most valuable thing. They brought them with them. They had them tell a story about it. And people had all kinds of different things for all kinds of different stories. This one guy had like an award he won for traveling a certain amount of miles. And another lady had visited this really kind of cool but unique place. She probably shouldn't have been in it. She got a picture of it and kept it. And uh, one lady said her cell phone. And so like all these different people said different things. And then they asked them, if we gave you 100,000 pounds, let's just call it dollars for our sake. If we gave you $100,000, would you give that thing to us? And everybody said no, except for the cell phone girl. She's like, well, yeah, I'll just buy a new phone. (laughs) So whatever the most valuable thing in your life is, would you be willing to sell it for $100,000? Now, some of you are like, uh, no, it's my house. It's worth more. Okay, let's up the ante. What about a million dollars? $10 million? A billion dollars. What would you be willing to sell it for? Is there a number that if I were to say it, you'd finally get to, the, to, the, to that value, you go, yes, absolutely, I'm all in. Go ahead and look at the person next to you. Go ahead and tell your spouse. If it's them, do not tell your spouse. <laughs> This would be a wise time to just go, no, of course not, honey. I, you're invaluable. There's an adage, right? Everything can be bought for the right price. You know, somebody knocked on your door today and said, I'd give you whatever the number is for your house. Would you walk? Now, the reason that's a hard question for some of us, some of us in the room are like, absolutely. If you're writing a check, you can have it, whatever it is, because it's just a thing. Others of us have deep and profound emotional attachment to things. Have you noticed that before? Things mean something. It could be a memory or something that happened previously in life, or it could just be something you don't even know is value. It's like, I don't know if I could sell it because this thing could be worth a fortune. And if so, and it's hiding in your basement, like, what are you doing hiding a fortune in a thing in your basement? But that's what happens to us. I personally am not one of those people. Apart from my family, uh, there are very few things in life that have very little any value, really, at all to me whatsoever. 
I've got like a handful or so of Peyton Manning rookie cards. Anybody want to buy them? For a decent price, you can have them. I've got like another handful of of Tom Brady rookie cards, probably gradable. And if you want them, I'll give you an even better price if you really are desperate for a Tom Brady rookie card. Like I just don't have things of value. I drive a 2005 Ford Focus wagon. I don't care about things much. And so one day when I was at my last church, uh, we had just come out of service. One of my volunteers walked by and he looked distraught. And I said, hey, are you okay? He said, our house caught on fire. He said, we lost everything. Nobody was hurt or injured. Our dog got away. We all got out of the house. Nobody was hurt or injured. We talked for a few minutes and I had just bought a house with my wife. And I had just got the homeowner's insurance on our house. And the policy, because almost everything we owned was hand-me-down or given to us by somebody else. I literally said to my wife, if our brand new house burns to the ground, we could literally end up with brand new furniture. Wouldn't that be cool? (laughs) (coughs) Which is funny when you're talking to your wife, but when you take the same comment and you make it to a guy whose house just literally burned to the ground, let's just say I've come a long way as a pastor in 20 years. Because his wife started weeping and she walked away and he talked to me politely for another two minutes before he left. And my wife, who you just saw on stage, turns and looks at me and says, are you an idiot? (laughs) To which obviously the answer is yes. And I said, well, I don't understand what's wrong. She said, Matt, their house just burned to the ground and you're casting a vision about the future. And I said, well, now that you say it like that, it kind of sounds dumb. (laughs) But for me, I don't, put much value in things. I just don't care. Let it burn to the ground. We'll go buy new stuff. It'll be fun. And what about you? What is the most valuable thing that you own? Well, I want to show you a story today. It's one sentence in the entire Bible, and it's the one that this whole really kind of book is built on. Uh, If you didn't get a copy of the book and you'd like one, we're saying, please, one per family. They're out on the table. A family generously donated these books, and we ordered another 50 Uh, books because so many were taken last week. That's good. So go ahead. If you didn't get one last week, grab one on your way out today. One per family. All right. So it comes from this verse, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and he bought the field. Now, this would not have been an uncommon situation. Back in the day, it was somewhat common for people to cross through fields and and to go from one place to another. It just would have cut travel significantly down. Agricultural society, most of your travel is done either by walking, occasionally by animals. If you had an animal, you could travel on, or they might help carry the load. But for the most part, it's going to be walking. So he could cut down significantly by cutting through the field. And as he cuts through the field, maybe he sees something in the ground, maybe he stumbles on it, whatever it is, maybe he's taking a break under a tree. And he finds something, a box or something, and he digs it up, and it is a huge amount of value. Now, he knows it would be illegal for him to take that treasure and just steal it, and it wouldn't be appropriate. It wouldn't be honoring to God. But not only that, but people would wonder, where did all this money suddenly come from? So he gets a great idea. I know what I'll do. I'll rebury it in the ground, and then I'll go buy the land. But in order to get the land, in order to buy the land, he's going to have to sell not his most valuable item, but literally everything he owns. It doesn't matter how much emotional attachment there is to it or anything else. 
But he knows what he found in the field is worth significantly more than what it's going to cost him. So he goes, he sells everything, he buys the field, and now the treasure is his. I've always wondered, and again, it's just a story Jesus told. It's one sentence in the Bible. But I always wondered, what if the guy who owned the land found the treasure in the meantime? Like, and he shows up and it's not there. But that would be a depressing story. Jesus didn't tell that version. In Jesus' version, this guy considered the treasure worth everything. And therein lies the heart of the entire passage, also the heart of the book, the heart of everything. So what is the treasure? Is the treasure Jesus? Is the treasure the things that Jesus cares about? Is the treasure you? Is the treasure salvation? Is the treasure heaven? Jesus leaves it just a little bit vague. And because while in America, especially in this society today, we want to deconstruct everything. We want to know who is the best quarterback of all time. And everybody obviously knows the answer is? Of course, we're in Indianapolis, so 10 Paytons get yelled out, right? We want to break it down to who's the best hockey player, who's the best baseball player, who's the best pitcher, who's the best hitter, who's the best dad, who's the best pastor. Go ahead. I'm just kidding. So it's my 10 years. Give me a day, right? I'm just kidding. So we all want to break it down. We want to deconstruct everything. But I think it's more complex than that because in Jesus' view, it's all one and the same. God, the salvation he gives us, the life he's offering us both now and for eternity, his mission, it's all wrapped up in one beautiful package. And his name is Jesus. And he's worth everything. But at that same time, it's only like six chapters later in the book of Matthew, we get a compare and contrast between this made-up person, that person's not real, this made-up person, and a real person. Let's take a look at that real person. Matthew chapter 19, if you have a Bible, you want to turn there. Otherwise, everything will be on the screen for you today. <coughs> in verse 16, it says this. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replies, there's only one who is good, meaning God. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Well, which ones, the man inquired? Well, first of all, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Old Testament do's and don'ts. However, you could find all of those do's and don'ts summarized in what we call the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments start with four commandments specifically about God, keeping his name holy, worshiping him above everything else, setting the Sabbath day aside. Basically, that's the first four. The last six have to do with how we live in this life. Now, what you're going to see is basically Jesus covers a lot of ground with those in his statement. Take a look still. Verse 18, Jesus replies, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. And then he says this key last one here, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's not actually what the text says. You can find this for yourself. I think it's Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20, if you want to go look up the Ten Commandments. The last commandment, Jesus gets all of these right, the last commandment actually says this, do not covet your neighbor's wife, 
You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. In other words, after you go through this whole list of don't do this and don't do this and don't do this, God begins at the end of the Ten Commandments to get to the idea the real problem doesn't lie out there. The real problem lies in here. So don't covet. Because if you don't covet, you won't commit adultery. And if you don't covet, you won't steal. And if you don't covet, you won't bear false testimony. See how it goes? So basically, the 10th commandment summarizes, if your heart with God is right, then you won't desire or long for what everybody else has that you don't. But Jesus took the covet language, the desire language, turned it on its head, and summarized it down to this little principle. And this isn't the first or last time that Jesus has done this. If you remember, Jesus is approached by a teacher of the law at one point, and the teacher says, of all the laws, which one's the most important? And Jesus clarifies, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all your strength. And before the teacher of the law could jump in, he says, oh, by the way, the second one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, coveting has to do with this little word called idolatry. Now, idolatry isn't something we want to talk too much about, right? Because most of us don't know what to do with idolatry. Now, if you've ever been to a foreign country, you know that there are idols all over the world, literal idols, where people will take tiny little statues, they'll bring them into their house, or they'll go to a temple, and they'll bow down to those statues, and they'll worship the statues, and they'll ask the statue to do good, do good things for them. When my lovely wife and I weren't able to get pregnant, she was a director of a local uh, public preschool. And one of the moms in the preschool uh, came up to her and gave her a necklace that said, this is a fertility necklace. And I don't remember which of the goddesses around the world that it was supposed to represent, but it's like, wear this necklace. And I always wondered more detail to that, but wear this necklace. And if you do, you'll get pregnant. The whole idea here is there isn't a sovereign God in heaven watching over your life. You need to take matters into your own hands because you can't trust him. But if you trust in this trinket or this thing, then you'll have all you need. That's the root of idolatry. And idolatry says, I'm not enough. I don't have enough. I haven't accomplished enough. I haven't achieved enough. I haven't accumulated enough. I need more. And if I could just have this fill in the blank, then I can be happy. And Jesus takes that whole idea of covetedness and idolatry, turns it, flips it on its head, and says the way to defeat that isn't just to say, oh, I did it again, I wish I didn't want more. Instead, actually turn your action outward, not inward, and love other people the way that you love yourself. Now, what's interesting is in doing that, he also exposes the man. He reveals what's really going on in his heart and life. Look at verse 20. All these things I have kept. Anybody have kids? How's your kid doing it honoring you all the time? Did they always get it right? I already know the answer. You don't have to raise your hand. That's okay. How about um, bearing false testimony? Have you ever defended a friend maybe when they didn't need defended? I mean, that one's a little easier, right? Stealing, 
Well, come on, not everybody in here is stolen. Yeah, I know, but what about, what about loving your neighbor as yourself? But see, that one's harder to gauge, isn't it? This is why at one point, Jesus is asked when he's doing this teaching, but who's my neighbor? But who am I responsible for? There's seven today, seven or so billion people. We're headed towards 10, say the estimates. Which one of those seven plus billion people am I responsible for as my neighbor? And see, that's the problem that most of us have. Most of us want to know what's the bare minimum that I need to do to be right with God. And the real heart of the problem for this rich young ruler is my problem. And I'm going to guess it's your problem. And that is we don't necessarily have God's heart about what he's doing in the world. We very much want to justify ourselves in our own eyes. And that's what this man wants to do. Notice Matthew chapter 19, verse 21. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, Go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now some of you know what happens next. We're gonna get there in a moment. It's one of the hardest, most mind-boggling passages in the world. I once got to hear Tony Campolo and if you don't know who Tony Campolo is, I do not agree with a lot of what Tony teaches. So if you go and look him up do not consider me referring to something he said as uh, uh, saying I agree with everything that he teaches. But he said this one thing I found fascinating once. He said, you know, depending on your economic status depends on how you read this text. He said, if you have a lot of resources and you are wealthy, even just wealthy by middle-class American standards, which is wealthy in the rest of the world, but if that is your standard, you hear this text and your immediate assumption is, Jesus wasn't being literal to this young ruler. Instead, Jesus was being more like metaphorical or categorical. He's just saying in general, this man has a heart problem. And Jesus is exposing his heart problem. You love stuff too much. He said, but if you're poor, you actually read that passage completely differently. Ironically, right? Because what do you have to get rid of? If you have nothing, who cares if you have to get rid of it? It's easy to get rid of. But if you have everything, it's very difficult to get rid of it to fulfill the call. So which one is right? Well, whichever one I say, obviously. I do love this. Tony Campolo in another place says, the typical size of an American house has increased 40% in the last 25 years. And it's not because we're having more children we're actually having fewer children. We need bigger and bigger houses simply to hold all the stuff we don't need. What's even worse is that we're renting out space and storage bins because we can't contain all the stuff we have in the huge houses we have at our disposal. It has become an insane society as far as surplus is concerned. And I think Tony's right. But it still begs the question, was Jesus being literal? In the book, Brady Alcorn says this, anything we try to hang on to here will be lost. But anything we put into God's hands will be ours for eternity. I don't know 100% whether Jesus is being literal or not. 
I know this, the passage is about to reveal to us that many people did sell their possessions and follow after Jesus and literally had little or very little left to go with. So was Jesus being literal to this man? Maybe. Zacchaeus, you know, the wee little man, the wee little man was he? Zacchaeus, when he met Jesus, he literally said, I'll pay back everybody I've cheated and anybody else, I'll, I'll give more, half, what is it, half to the poor and everybody I've cheated two or three times as much or whatever it is. So literally when Zacchaeus met Jesus, it would have left him close to or completely bankrupt. And history tells us, not the Bible tells us, that Zacchaeus went all in on following Jesus. Is that what Jesus is demanding of all of us, even if he demanded it of this man? I think what Randy just hit on is the bigger point the bigger purpose here, and it's not just because I'm in suburbia in a somewhat wealthy community, it's because I really believe what Jesus is doing is exposing the man's heart while also giving us a real principle that we can latch onto. Everything in this world is one day going to fade, everything. Rust is going to destroy it, thieves are going to steal it, your kids are going to waste it, but it all stays behind, except everything you send ahead of you. Let's take a look. Matthew <clears throat> chapter 13, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, he sold everything he had, and he bought it. That comes right after the treasure in the field passage. Same passage, same example. The whole point of what Jesus is trying to make here is when you find Jesus, you realize there is literally nothing in this world, nothing more valuable than him, nothing. So we have to search our own hearts. And this is what the rich young ruler refused to do. We must search our own hearts and try to discern, God, is there anything in me that I have placed above you? Is there anything in my life, in my possession around me that I consider to be more valuable to you? Is there anything that I have put above you that if you were to ask it of me, I would say no or I'm not sure or not yet? Because if so, Jesus wants that thing or those things from you. But the reason is not because God's a cruel God. It's not because God wants to take anything away from you. Oh no, it's the exact opposite. It's because he's a good God and he knows that if anything else has a place in his, where he's supposed to be in your life, that it's gonna hurt you. But the reality is this. I've been teaching on this now at least 15 years. I didn't teach on it a ton as a student pastor, maybe just not as much as I should have. And what happens to most of us is we hear these teachings and just like the rich young ruler, Matthew chapter 19, verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Many of us don't like these teachings by Jesus because we understand the implications of them. And it's hard for us. Donald Miller says about this guy, this guy said, I do everything right. And Jesus said, okay, you do everything right, we'll do this. And he couldn't. Jesus was trying to say, see, you're not okay. You're sick, just like everybody else is sick. Then he says, I'll heal you. And the guy says, no, I want to stay sick. The real issue is about addiction. 
We live in a culture that's addicted to money and we're addicted to what money can buy us and we've fooled ourselves into thinking that I can buy this product and this product's gonna make me happy. And we're fooled because the average American sees 3,000 commercial images a day. It's like somebody constantly asking you if you want crack 3,000 times a day and you only take it once a day and that's not good enough. Now, I don't know about you, I'm not personally attracted to crack. So that, I have to say that publicly, right? So everybody thinks, like, let it go on the record. But the point of the analogy is still powerful. I've been told, I've read by people who have used crack or any drug that it is so intoxicating that the first time you use it, you can become addicted to the way that it makes you feel. But money is no different. There's something powerful and enlightening about money. When you have it, you just can't get enough. And this man was willing, check this out, this man was willing to give up everything rather than get Jesus. Matthew chapter 19, verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Somebody a long time ago tried to propose that what Jesus meant was there was this old gate called the camel's gate. And what would happen is a camel would have to stoop down because the gate was low to go under the gate. And it was really hard for a camel to do, but if the camel tried hard enough or with some leadership, it could do it. There is literally no evidence of a gate called the camel's gate. This was made up by a person trying to change what Jesus was really saying. What Jesus is saying is very plain to understand. There's no reason to take it other than what he says. It is easier for a large camel to go through the eye of a needle. I don't care how big the needle is you pick. It's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than for that to occur. That is a profound statement with significant implications. Here's what it means for me. It means whether I know it or not, I will be blinded by money. And it's gonna sneak up on me and I'm not gonna know it, I'm not gonna see it. It's gonna be hard because it's gonna get a grip on me that I don't feel until maybe it's too late. The disciples look at Jesus, verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Well, it wouldn't be so astonishing if a camel just had to work a little harder to get in. They were astonished because they understand the implications of what Jesus is saying. And they asked, well, who then can be saved? Jesus, you've just made the most hyperbolic, the most uh, extreme example possible. Who could possibly be saved? Jesus looks at them and says, you know, with a man, this is possible, but with God, all things are possible. Wow. You know what Jesus is saying? In spite of our love for stuff, in spite of our love for money, God is still good. And he could do anything. 
But then I love Peter, because I think I'm a lot like Peter. I just kind of assumed everybody would want to be Peter, and then I sit down with other people, and they don't relate with Peter, because Peter's kind of a bold guy. He's a talk first, think second kind of guy, so he's always sticking his foot in his mouth, and I just, I don't know why. I just think there's some reason I think Peter's just such a great person. I don't know why you're laughing, but Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, then Peter answered him, oh, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What will there be then for us? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I'll get to that. Let me just explain that before I read the rest. Jesus is talking to the disciples now. Again, there are these 12 tribes of Israel. There's a profound impact of those. But then he goes even further. And the 12 of you who have followed me, most likely, and I'm getting really deep now. For those of you who are following, those of you who aren't, don't worry about it. Most likely, we lose Judas because he betrayed, but we pick up Paul later in, in, in the gospel story, the book of Acts. So we have 12. And he's saying, the 12 of you are going to rule in heaven. And we see that actually in the book of Revelation, there's 24 elders, most likely. It's the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. Most likely, that's what we're talking about. But it's kind of irrelevant for this conversation. What Jesus is trying to say to Peter and the disciples is, there is nothing lost in giving up everything to follow me. Nothing. Because great is your reward in heaven. Here, you may be nothing more than fishermen or tax collectors who no longer collect taxes or whatever it may be, but there you will have authority and influence in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's not prosperity gospel, friends. We need to not be afraid to say everything Jesus said. Not one ounce more, not one ounce less. Everything that he said. And what he said is, your faithfulness to me here means something there. Verse 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Now, some of y'all with some messed up kids are too willing to fulfill this passage. Let me clarify what Jesus means. And this is where sometimes the message of Jesus is just flat offensive. We live in a culture that worships family. And I think the world of family. There is nothing that I wouldn't give up for one of my kids except my savior. Somehow we got into this talk last night about fistfights that their daddy has been in. And I never want to glorify those stories because I don't ever want there to be something like great to see in those stories. Like, okay, your daddy's been in a few fistfights. Um, some of them went better than others. Here's kind of the story. And they were just eating it up, right? They're little boys. Like, oh, tell us another one, dad. Tell us another. And how'd that one go? And why'd that happen? And why'd that you know, fight break out? And, da -da, and we're going through all these. And it kind of at the end of all, I'm like trying to downplay it and downplay it. Look, guys, I was a young man. Like young men sometimes do these things and blah, blah, blah. And here's what was happening. And at the end of all, I said, look, you need to know something about your daddy. And I want you to learn this. I hope you never, ever, ever have to get in a real fight, ever. I hope you never get put in a situation. But if you do, I want you to be ready to use your strength to protect others. And then I said, your daddy is ready. Should the time ever come that I have to give up my life to protect you or somebody else, I'm ready. Now, I think I'm ready. I mean, we'll find out when the time comes, but 
I think I'm ready. And like one of my sons, you saw on the video, he's like, he's like, dad, that makes me really sad. I'm like, well, son, there's, we're going to bed. There's nothing to be worried about right now. Nobody's coming in the house. There's nothing to fear. You need to know I count nothing, including my life, worth anything. If it pleases the Father, we do it. I don't want you to get that. Jesus is trying to drive home the point. Not that he doesn't love your kids. Not that he doesn't love your spouse. Not that he doesn't love your parents. Not that he doesn't care about your fields and possessions and your homes and your cars. He's trying to drive home the point of the supremacy of God. Because he's bigger and better and more beautiful than anything in all creation. And he's worth it. And when we come to God and we say, God, I will put nothing of value. Remember where we started. What's the most valuable thing you have? You immediately went to my kids, my spouse, right? Most of you. Some of you, we need to talk about it later. But most of you went there. And Jesus said, give me the most valuable thing that you have. Give it to me. And then watch what I do. Because he makes you this money back guarantee. I promise you, I promise you, you will receive 100 times as much and will inherit eternal life. Does that mean eternal life can be bought? Of course not. That's not the implication of what Jesus is saying. This is where it takes study and nuance to understand what Jesus is trying to get to. What Jesus is trying to say is there's literally nothing in this life more valuable than him. And so if you're willing to receive God, God's making you a trade. I will give you everything, but you have to give me everything. Who has more, you or God? And that's what he's saying. You give me everything. Put me first above all else. Do what pleases me and I will reward you in the life to come. The question is always, do we believe God? We're in the outcorn of the treasure principle again. He says this. Doesn't it seem strange that Jesus commands us to do what's in our own best interests? I mean, wouldn't that be selfish? No. God expects and commands us to act out of enlightened self-interest. Meaning, I understand the big picture of what God is doing in the world, what God is trying to accomplish through me, and I understand ultimately where the story arc is going, that one day when he returns and sets up his throne, he's looking to find out who's with me, who are the people who are gonna live and reign and rule in my kingdom with me. And so he's painting that picture for you, and he's saying, can you live today with the end in mind? I love this. Treasure principle number one, we're gonna cover one a week. We'll remind you each week which one you missed the week before in case you weren't here, but treasure principle number one is this. You can't take it with you, anything with you, but you can send it on ahead. What Jesus is promising us is whatever you give up for God and for his kingdom, whatever it is, you don't lose it, you send it on ahead. And oh, by the way, I'm no math genius, but in the book, Randy Alcorn claims that's a 10,000% interest rate, 100 times as much. I don't even know if that's right or not because there's no math in Bible college. But taking him at his word, it's big. It's big. 
But then Jesus closed with Matthew 19, verse 30. He says, and many who are first will be last. And many who are last will be first. We use this passage a lot in our home, especially when daddy loses it, something with the kids. And I say, I'm just trying to be like Jesus, so technically I won. <clears throat> See what I did there? Not what Jesus meant. What Jesus means is this. In this life, we look at people with money and power and riches and wealth and we think they won the game. Jesus says the opposite is true. It's not about how much you accumulate. It's about how much you give away. Let that sink in for a minute. And those who are first will actually be last. And those who are last will actually be first. It's an upside down kingdom. Who wants in? Be careful how you answer. Because the rich young ruler was willing to walk away from God because of this teaching. And how you answer may change the trajectory of your life. I've never yet had my house get caught in a fire. I got a good insurance plan if it does. But I can tell you right now, there's nothing that I'll lose that means anything to me. It's all stuff. Can you say the same? What I wanna do right now is I wanna close our service by giving you an opportunity. Don't start wrestling yet because we ain't done. Football's not starting for a long time. I wanna give you the opportunity to be in the presence of God. You've already given up an hour and a half or so of your day to come and be in this place and hear from the Lord and I don't know what God wants to say to you. I don't. But I know that you have this moment protected. Put your cell phone away. Put your tablet away for just 10 more minutes and come be in the presence of God. Talk to him. Cry out to him. Spend time with him. Whatever it is, but give these next 10 minutes fully to him. Receive whatever he has for you now. Here's how we're gonna do this. You'll notice all over the room, up top, down front, we've got these tables. There's communion on the table. If you wanna spread out across the front of the stage and kneel down, if you wanna take the communion back to your seat, you wanna go somewhere else in the room, you wanna stay at the table, whatever it is, we want you to take that bread, take that juice, and just have a conversation with your heavenly Father and say, God, speak to me, lead me, challenge me, encourage me, but don't leave me the way I came here today. You'll find a black box on the table. It's for your offering. Whatever it is you're bringing to God this week in response to all he has given you to say, God, here's what I'm giving back to advance your kingdom, to advance your mission. And listen, you're not alone. Some of you come here today. I ran into one lady right before. She's trying to get an appointment with me because she has deep and heavy sorrow from a tragedy that happened in her family a year or so ago. And I just gave her a hug. I said, we'll get together soon. Listen, you may be here today with deep and profound hurt and weight on your shoulders. God is ready to meet you right here and right now. Don't let the moment pass. We have a group of people called our Connect Team. They're ready to pray with you, talk to you, answer questions for you, connect you to ministries that we have at the church. This is your time. You've got time. 
Let me pray. Heavenly Father, stir in this place. Move in us, God. Convict our hearts. God, if there's anything that we have put above you, if there's anything we've held back from you, if there's anything that we consider to be more valuable than you, God, right here, right now, convict us. Strip it away from us, Father, that we would no longer hold on to it. God, we love you. We thank you that we are loved by you. We ask all this in Jesus' name.